Glad to be here. Turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to talk about a simple New Testament church. Let me ask this. How many don't have an outline? You forgot to get an outline because usually a speaker doesn't have an outline. Let me see. Okay, we need to make those available then. Uh, this is going to be something where you're not just going to look at a screen then. Hey, you get to look at me. And secondly, it's not a fill in the blanks because I don't want you to be looking all through the message trying to think, now what was that word I was supposed to write in there? It's a full outline. You have the outline from start to finish. You got the title, you got the text, you got the theme, you got the introduction, got the main points, a couple sub points, but you have it and you'll be able to take it home with you so you can all just throw back and go, whew. I'm glad he did all that work for us, and it's all in my hands, and I can take it home. I'm not going to leave it here at the church on a screen. I'm going to be able to take it home with me. And all God's people said? Okay, how many are with me? Okay, how many are glad to be here this morning? You're glad to be here. So much are you glad to be here. You're glad, you're, glad you, you're, you're here rather than in the best hospital in the area. Let me see your hands. Good. I have a willing crowd. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, and we want to look specifically beginning with verse 40. Verse 40, Acts chapter 2. It says, And what many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, who are we talking about when it says, And with many other words, he? Who's the he? Peter. How many of you think that the people that were around the cross, the time of Christ being put on the cross, and saw Peter deny Jesus three times, how many of you would have thought at that moment that he would have been the spokesman on the day of Pentecost? Anybody? You know what that shows you? There's always time to change your mind. There's always a time to say, I'm sorry. There's always a time to say, I made a mistake. There's always a time to say, I want to do better, and I want to go on for God. And here God is using Peter in this particular day, this special day of Pentecost, and he is saying to them, be safe from this perverse generation. You say, you mean there was a perverse generation back in that day? Have you been reading the paper in our day? Have you been listening to the news are you aware of all of the things that are going on right now that fit into the categories of perverse or immoral? Yes, culture has always been against God. Never forget that. That's why you should never commit yourself to culture because culture is part of a world system. And that world system is literally influenced and governed by Satan. And Satan will try to claim your time and he will try to claim your interests and he will try to claim your desires and try to claim your schedule and he will take you on a path of destruction. And so Peter says, there's a perverse generation. But, verse 41, then those that gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. There were more present than just Peter. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 44 and verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as everyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking the bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's bow for prayer. Father, Bless now as we talk about this passage of Scripture and as we try to identify a simple New Testament church. I pray that you would encourage us with these words. I pray that we might find our, our basis for what we do in church ministry right here in this passage of Scripture. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You as a church are going to now face the difficulty of having a pastor that you've come to know and to love. And by the way, I've known Kristen and Mike. Kristen's here today. I, I, I wasn't sure Kristen was going to be here, so that's a surprise. Um, but I've known them now for the last uh, 16 years as I've been in the state and uh, served with Mike on the youth committees and served with him on the council of, it's called the council of eight now. It used to be called the council of 10. Now it's the council of eight. And uh, been with him at camp because he's a, He's a camp guy, you know, and uh, played uh, some sports with him. You don't ever want to play basketball with Kristen, though. I have played basketball with Kristen, and she will beat you in basketball. She's got drive and intensity, and, and uh, she can pass and score, and, and, uh, and you're going to lose your pastor and your wife. They're going to be going, I think it's May, isn't it, that you're going to be leaving and so you're going to be pastorless, pastorless. That's scary, isn't it? That's scary. And I say that's scary because I just was on a Zoom call last week with all of the representatives all over the United States, and we all got together for a Zoom call. We get together twice a year, but... This came up here in March. We've got one now scheduled for the fall. But I just got together with all those representatives and all those leaders of all these states. And you know what the number one cry is among all the leaders? We need names of pastoral candidates because we don't have any. I just want you to think about that for a moment. I'm getting calls from churches in nine different states for names. And in most cases, I say I don't have any. There's an association of independent Baptist churches in this state. It's not ours. It's another group. And 35% of their pastors, of their churches, excuse me, don't have pastors. 35%. And one church has been without a pastor for three years. Now we have about seven churches in our association of 65 churches that are in what we call the pastoral search. We just got one for Brown Street. So, you know, yay! God brought him to us and we're thankful. 
none of our churches are without pastoral leadership. So we do not have any empty pulpits. We have interim pastors and we have regular pulpit fills and Marsha and I have one of those churches and I'm the regular interim there at that church. But none of them are vacant pulpits. We have all of them filled. And that's a pretty good percent, only about seven out of the 65. That is a great percent. But not all associations are seeing that kind of success. And it's not easy. And so I want you to notice in, our, in your notes right away here, that the very first point is that there was proper leadership to guide this church. There was proper leadership to guide the church. And I want to say to you right now that every single one of you in this, this auditorium, every single one of you as a, a tender and member of this church should begin now to pray about God's leading, God's leading in getting a new pastor, another pastor. And not only should you be praying about that, that God would be putting upon the heart of somebody to begin to think about and to be motivated and interested in the possibility of coming to be your next pastor. But you should be praying for the leadership of your own church, the deacons. And depending on your constitution, that may be the same as the pulpit committee. And so you should begin now to start to pray about this whole process as they begin to function as a pulpit committee and as a search committee and as they begin to try to figure out the future direction of the church regarding the pastor. How many will plan to begin today to start to pray about God's men for this church and about the leadership in this church? If so, let me see your hands. You'll start today. Good. All right, how many deacons do we have here? Raise your hand if you're a deacon. That two, three maybe. All right. Is that, a, is that an encouragement, men? Paul, is that an encouragement? Start to pray now. Don't wait. Don't wait till Mike and Kristen leave and then get desperate. Start now. Start now. Why? Proper leadership. Proper leadership is important. Peter was the one that was the spokesman, but there were other apostles involved, and they were there to preach, and they were preaching the gospel. And then number two, notice our second point. There was a proclamation of doctrinal truth in the early church. They began to preach, and he was quoting out of the Old Testament, and he was also preaching the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ in our passage, and people were getting saved. They were receiving the word, and they were being baptized, and they were being added to the church. Isn't that an interesting verse? You have the preaching of the word of God. You have people believing and getting saved. You have people then that are getting saved, being baptized, and then you have people being What's the next word? Added to the church. Notice that sequence. Doctrine, preaching the word, preaching the death and burial, res burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and preaching the word that they'd heard from Jesus personally. These are the apostles. These are the ones that were with Jesus for three years. These are the ones that heard him teach more than any other group. These are the ones that actually could think 
and know from personal experience what he said. And, and they were there to reaffirm that truth to these people. And when the people gathered there on the day of Pentecost heard those words and heard that teaching and heard that truth, they accepted the truth. And then they were baptized. And then they were added. Do you know that's not the pattern of many evangelical churches of our day? Do you realize that? Some of the key writers of our day right now, and it has been going on for the past 20 years, say in their writings, this is the most worldly church in the history of Christianity. The churches of our day. It is almost a Laodicean type of characteristic where they've lost their first love. And so we're living in that day. I, I know some mega church pastors who just readily admit that more than 50% of the people attending their churches aren't even saved. More than 50% aren't even saved. It is interesting what, what has been happening in our day. So when we talk about a pattern and we see it in scripture like this, it is a pattern where the gospel is being preached. And by the way, there is one of the most prominent preachers in our day who pastors one of the largest churches in our entire United States. And he not long ago came out and said, we should no longer preach expository messages. People can't take expositional preaching. They want stories. Expositional preaching just simply means you take the Bible as to what it says and in its historical setting and you're very careful to be exegetical with the words. You, you talk about what the words mean and you talk about what tense they're in and from that you gain truth and instruction to know how you're to understand it and how you're to move forward in your life. That's exegetical expository preaching. And this prominent pastor says, People can't take that anymore. They just want stories. So much of our preaching today in our churches hardly ever touch on the doctrine of sanctification. They're all wrapped up in justification. We're saved. We're saved. Don't tell me how to live. We're saved. We're saved. Praise God. We're saved. Let's praise God. We're saved. Don't tell me how I'm supposed to manifest Christ. Sanctification. Let alone glorification. Getting to go home to be with the Lord. Wow. We're in a mess in this day in which we're living. And all of us need leadership that is going to be focused on doctrinal truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the? You're there. Praise the Lord. You know that scripture. The Bible tells us that we're to desire the sincere milk of the word. 
It's the word of God that keeps us from being tossed about with every false wind of doctrine. The word of God is that which is revealing truth and true love, what it means to know God and love God. We need messages like this. I just want to say this church has been known for that kind of pattern. Amen? You've been known as that kind of a church. And praise the Lord, that's the kind of witness you are in this community. But you're going to have to reaffirm that as you now come to the idea of bringing in another pastor. You're going to want another pastor to come in here and be the same type of pastor. One that is literally going to be one that's going to guide the church properly and one that is going to be committed to the truth of the word of God, the doctrines of the word of God. And one that will not be ashamed to preach those truths expositionally from the word of God. I want you to notice there was biblically based fellowship. That's our third point. Biblically based fellowship. We see that from verse uh, 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And what's the next word? Fellowship. Fellowship. Turn to... uh, John 17. John 17 for just a moment. John 17, and we're going to look there at verses 21, and we'll also jump back to verse 17. What I I want you to see here is something that's very fascinating. John chapter 17, verse 21. This verse is the motto for the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement is a movement that wants to bring all churches under one heading. By the way, they want to do this, and that's the precursor that is the steps toward a one-world church. And when do we see a one-world church in the Bible? In the book of Revelation. Antichrist and the false prophet are interested in a one world church. Well, the ecumenical movement have been around for a long time now, but their motto verse is found in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they all may be one as we, you, Father, and I in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And so that's their motto. That we may be one. That we may be one. As you are one, we want to be one. I want you to notice what precedes verse 21. It's verse 17. Sanctify, in other words, set aside them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let me just say, there is no unity without truth. No unity without truth. And the ecumenical movement, which wants to bring all churches into one big mega institutional approach to religion, has in many cases compromised their truth in order to bring all those religions together. In so many words, they're saying truth doesn't really matter. But what does the Bible say? 
sanctify them. How? Through thy truth. So what's the truth? Thy word is truth. You don't have unity, real unity without the word of God and without being sanctified by the word of God. And so biblically-based fellowship does not simply mean two fellows in a ship. You know what the word fellowship means? And by the way, there are a number of places this Greek word is used and it's not always translated fellowship, but just for the sake of things. The word fellowship primarily means a common basis for participation. That's all fellowship means, a common basis for participation. So you can have fellowship in a neighborhood, why? Because you and the neighbors all live in the same neighborhood. And so you can have neighborhood fellowship. That's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about a doctrinal base for fellowship. And so as you think about genuine fellowship, you understand there has to be this common basis for fellowship or for participation, and this involves doctrine. This involves teaching. So we've seen there needs to be proper leadership. We've seen there needs to be doctrinal truth, proper doctrine. We've seen also this biblically-based fellowship. Verse 42, they continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And then, number four, the ordinances are involved here. They also were involved with the breaking of bread. And that is a reference to the Lord's table and to the ordinances. Baptism was up a little further in the text there as we read. They were baptized after they were saved, starting with uh, verse 40 and reading forward. And now there was this regular Lord's table, breaking of the bread, and that's what it was called at first. Remember, a lot of this is descriptive in the book of Acts. It's describing what happened. Some of it hadn't fully developed. You don't get to the pastoral epistles until Paul writes them close to the end of his ministry. It's the last books he wrote. And so some of the qualifications and stipulations and, and actually firm practices of the church is, was established clear at the end of Paul's ministry. So what we have through the epistles and what we have in Acts is describing this process of development. And so they were used to this love feast, they called it, when they gathered together. And at the end of the love feast, they simply continued on with the Lord's table and they called it the breaking of the bread. And by the way, they did that every week. And we don't have a rule in Scripture saying how often we should do it. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 11 just says you do it as often. As often as you do this. Most churches do it about once a month. Interestingly enough, there's a whole host of churches in evangelicalism that have just stopped doing it. You know why? Streamline the program. It's too cumbersome. 
don't have enough time. Wow. You know, Acts 2.42 is describing the purposes of the church. And we've got churches today just saying, we don't need that anymore. Well, we do need it. We do need it. Why? Because coming to the Lord's table has to do with self-examination. Coming to the Lord's table recognizes what Jesus did on the cross and being thankful and grateful for that sacrifice for our sins. Coming to the Lord's table makes sure you're going to be right with God and you're also going to try to be right with one another as a body and that has to do with body fellowship and body community. Oh, it's essential. I, I know of one professor that I listened to some years ago at a conference, and he made a case for saying that a church maybe should do it every week. I wasn't necessarily of that opinion, but I heard a good argument for that. The early church came together in intimacy, they came together in love. They came together in fellowship. They came together in community. And together, they said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I just want to remember you again. You know, it's not a sacrament where you receive grace and forgiveness of sins. Not that. It's not a sacrament. It's a remembrance and therefore an ordinance. It's a remembrance. It's symbolic. The bread and the cup, symbolic. This ring is symbolic. What does this ring mean? It means I'm married. Am I still married? Oh. It's just a symbol. It's not marriage. It's just a symbol. Now, if I don't wear it, uh, I'd stop wearing it. That might say something about my marriage. Right? But the fact that I wear it says I'm in love with one. And by the way, we celebrate 50 years this year. 50 years. I went out and got Marsha little earrings. And they're three little tiny, I suppose they're diamonds. I didn't really check on that for sure, but they're very little. After all, I've been in ministry. I just don't have that much to spend but we got three little diamonds on the earrings, and, and we did it for a reason. Why? Because the first diamond, and by the way, my birthday's in April, and so my birthstone for April is a diamond. So coming from me, this really is kind of a special thing to do. So we did it, and the one diamond represents her, and the next diamond at the end represents me, and the one in the middle represents God. 
I've performed many weddings. And in each case, I gave a poem to the couple. And you know what the title of the poem was? Marriage takes three. Right? A husband, a wife, and God. Praise the Lord. Marriage still takes three symbols. The Lord's table is a very precious thing for us to continue to do, the two ordinances. Now, number five, there was corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. It says in verse 42, they also came together for prayer. You know, this may be the most neglected facet of the Christian life. Prayer. Boy, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know why we don't pray more? Now, this is simplistic. But you know why really we don't pray more? Because prayer is an admission of dependence. That's what prayer is. You wouldn't pray if you didn't think you were dependent. You've got to be dependent to want to pray. I am so dependent that I'm going to pray to the one that hears and answers prayer. Not according to my desires, not according to what I think, but according to what he thinks. Real prayer doesn't start with me and real prayer doesn't usually start with a prayer list. You know where real prayer starts? According to Romans chapter 8, it starts with God. And God sends his thoughts to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to our thinking and says, here's what God wants you to pray about. And with groanings which cannot be uttered by people, the Holy Spirit takes the verbiage and the vocabulary out of our thinking and minds and he gives us the thoughts we're to pray. And then we take those thoughts and we pray those thoughts back up to God. But first, before they reach God, they go through the mediator, which is Jesus. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he starts bringing these requests that he's hearing back to the Father. And the Father's sitting up there, and he's singing to himself, Now, were these the thoughts I sent that are now coming back to me, or are these just thoughts? And the more we understand the sequence and cycle of prayer, the more we'll see our need to pray. It's not just left up to us. God is the instigator of true prayer. And as you think about it in your life, just, just think with me on this. You ever gone through a day and all of a sudden, a name comes to your thinking 
You think of a relative, you think of a family member, think of somebody at church, you think of a, of a, of a need like, like sickness or some infirmity, you know. You know, that just might be God prompting your heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Putting that into your thinking, your words, using your words. So you can say, thank you, God. I know it's your desire for that person, far greater than my desire for that person, but I just want to send word back to you through the Lord Jesus as the mediator that I agree with you, God. I really do agree with you and what you think for that person. <sighs> this church got together for prayer. Corporate prayer, meaningful prayer. Number six, got two to go. How many are still with me? Raise your hand, you're still with me. Good. How many aren't with me? Don't raise your hand. Don't, don't. All right. Number six, there were vital experiences with one another in the church. They continued daily. They continued daily. This is what I call a sense of community. If you really want to be attractive to another pastor coming into this church, develop, truly develop right now in the last weeks and so forth of Mike and Kristen's time here and during the interim period between another pastor, develop community. Perpetuate the community you've already had. Enhance your community. Become desperate to have community. Realize everybody's going to need to participate. Everybody's going to need to function. Everybody's going to need to work. Everybody's going to need to take a job. Everyone's going to have to say, you can count on me. Amen? You can count on me. I could give you many illustrations. I'm going to give you, I wasn't going to do that today, but I'm going to do it because I feel impressed to do it. When I, we were pastoring in Colorado, we had an 80-year-old lady, and um, her name was Evelyn. And Evelyn said, nobody should ever just sit when they go to church. Nobody. Everybody can do something. Whatever it is, you can do something. So she was in her 80s. I think she was over 80. Anyway, she was one of our Sunday school teachers. I think it was for the third grade. And I got to the church. We were running two services in our church because we were growing. And, and, um, and so I, I needed to get to the church by at least 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning. And our first service was at 8. And I was there usually first. And the next person to get to church was Evelyn. Uh, she, she wasn't going to teach till Sunday school at 9.30, but she was there. Now, the, the problem is she couldn't get in the front door. Why couldn't she get in the front door? Because she had packages, usually two to three packages, and she couldn't get to the door. So I kind of wait. I get there early, you know, and I kind of wait for Evelyn. She was the next person, and I see her coming. I go over, and I'd open the front door for her. Oh, thank you, Pastor. Thank you so much. I just have to make sure I'm ready for Sunday school. 
I said, you know, it's, it's only 7 whatever, 7.30, 7.45. No, but, I, you know, I've got to go back there. I've got to set up the room. I've got things to put on the board. And I, I brought some stuff in this sack. You ought to see what I brought. And i got to set that up. And I, I just got to give these kids really something special today. And it's going to take me an hour, hour and a half to do it. And i got to be ready for these kids when they come. And there was not another Sunday school teacher like her. I'll never forget, and I think she's been the only person in my ministry as like a third grade teacher or so that called me one day and said, Pastor, I'm going to start this subject to teach the kids, and I wonder if you could give me two or three books that I could read so I could be better prepared to teach these kids coming up in the fall. A Sunday school teacher who actually reads two or three books on a subject so they can be more qualified? Now, that wasn't all. Evelyn would say, you can't let any grass grow under your feet. So that's Sunday. What am I going to do the rest of the week? So she joined the Iwana program. And she was one of the teachers. What's the... Huh? Louder. Sparks. She was a spark. Do we have any Sparks directors in here? You, you run Sparks? Okay, couple. All right. She said, I need, I need to get with these kids on Wednesday night. After all, I've just been serving on Sunday. That's not enough. You've got to serve more than just Sunday, don't you? So I've got to serve on Wednesday night. And I went back there one Wednesday night. Avalon was running the games with those kids. She was beating those kids around this. They was playing a circle game, and I don't know if it was duck, duck, goose or what it was, but she was running, and these kids were chasing her, you know, and then she was sitting with them, and they're going over their memory work, and I looked at her, and I thought, dear God, please give us more Evelyns, people that just will say, what can I do? I'm pastoring a church in Peoria, and everybody in our church has a job. Absolutely everybody in our church has a job. Well, we've got a six and a four-year-old come in, and they sit through our service. You say, they have a job? Yep. They receive our offering. You can't get over it. And they tell their parents, we got to go to church, Mommy, because we have our church job. We received the offering. And so those two little kids, a little boy and a girl, brother and sister, and they come up four and six. They started this when they were four and two, I think. <laughs> I've got pictures if you want to see it after the service. Anyway, they come up. And they get in front of me here, and I said, oh, kids, are you ready to receive the offering? Yes, we are ready to receive the offering. And I said, and who would you like to pray? And usually they both turn and point to their dad. Daddy! Last Sunday, they pointed to their mother, just about floored her. And then they go ahead and pass the plates. And you know what? Our offerings are up. How do you not put something in the offering plate when little Polly 
comes with the offering plate and looks at you. Hmm. You need to come together with what's going to come with not having Mike and Kristen here, with the potential of another pastor coming. You need to pull together. You need... You need community that everybody says, what can I do? What can I do? How can I help? How can I serve? I don't care what it is. It could stand at the door and greet people. Pass out a bulletin. If you have outlines for a message, pass out the outlines. Do something. Don't just come and sit and expect to be entertained. But say, how? Can I serve you? Say, what other jobs do you have? Well, um, how about a compassionate care group? A compassionate care group in the church so that all the people that are part of the group meet once a month and you go over the needs of people that are shut-ins and infirm and people that are lonely in the church and older folk and you divide off the names and those people on the committee go out and they make a call on those people during the week. Wow. Everybody with a job. And if you think about it, if you really think about it, it's not hard to come up with ideas. I'll give you one more. No, I better not. Okay, let's look at number seven, our final point. There was a vital passion for witnessing to others. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord from day to day that's the sense in the Greek on the word daily day to day added those to the church who were being saved just a couple of thoughts Um, did you know that only 14% of all Christians witness? Only 14% of all Christians ever witness. And only 1% of all Christians have ever led somebody to the Lord other than their own family members, children. Wow. Wow. Talk about what a great need is and talk about what to do as a church and how to function as a church and be biblical. These people were out. It says here, praising God and having favor with all the people. These evangelism is supposed to be personal. We have duped people into thinking for years that evangelism is programmatic. Evangelism is something the church is supposed to do by way of a program. And because of that, we've left it to the church to do the evangelism. And we have failed as individual Christians to even speak up for Christ. There was a church in our fellowships over in Missouri. They lost their pastor. 
I got with the two key leaders, especially the one fella, deacon, and had talks with them. Finally, I got a, a fella to pastor the church. And the day, the Sunday that that pastor came to the church, his first Sunday, the key deacon in the church handed him his keys and said, I'm gone because I'm going to do such and such. And I know if I do this, you're going to probably kick me out of the church. Now, there were only 15 people in that church. And before that pastor came, I met with those people. And during the Sunday school hour, I just simply said, what are you looking for in a pastor? Well, nobody was coming forth with much of an answer until one person raised their hand and said, I know. And I said, what? I said, we need a pastor to go door to door and win people to Christ. Now, this town is called, well, I shouldn't probably mention the name of the town, but anyway, the town basically has no businesses. Every business in the town is closed. It's got one stop sign, and it's got the church, and in that town, you can see five houses. That's it. Now, there's some houses down some county roads and out different places, but in the town, you look around at the entire town, five houses. So, I'm in Sunday school, and I said, what are you looking for in a pastor? And this person said, we need a pastor who's going to go out and, and uh, go door to door and win people to Christ to make this church grow. So then I just looked at the people and I said, and what is he going to do on day number two? And it was stunning. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. And... As nicely as I, I could, I just took my finger and I said, you're the reason this church is going to grow or not grow. Not the pastor. Now the pastor has a part. You know, you don't go to a church where the pastor's an absolute dud. You got to have somebody that can preach. You got to have somebody that's personal and all the other but I think that was the first time it hit that church that they had to become involved. They were the ones that needed to witness. I'll end with this illustration because my time is gone. Will you let me give you one more illustration? How many? Well, let me give you one. Okay, okay, here it is. I have a game I play. Now, you can't play it exactly the way I play it, so don't try. You have to be a pastor to play this game. But you figure out how you can do it. I got a game I call Stump the Pastor. Stump the Pastor. So wherever I go, wherever we are, and I have time to do it, I ask somebody. I've been in the ministry a long time. I've studied the Bible. I think I've got a lot of thoughts and answers. But I'm always looking for people who can give me a question they've had on their minds about God, about Satan, about angels, about heaven, about hell, about the Bible, about Adam and Eve, about whatever, that could ask me a question that I couldn't answer. 
So I'm going to give you an opportunity to play the game with me called Stump the Pastor and see if you can give me a question I can't answer. When we were coming to Illinois, we had a realtor. He was in his 70s. He had been a farmer. He had retired from farming. He's now a realtor. I said this game, told him about the game on the first day. We came out, we looked at 30 houses in basically three days. So we were with him, we were with him over five, but we were only looking at houses specifically on the three days. On the very first day, I said to him, I've got this game called Stump the Pastor. And if you've ever had any question, I'd like you to ask me and see if I can answer it. Well, he's in his 70s. Not that I'm negative on that. I'm in my 70s, so. He didn't say a word. Didn't give me a question. We went a couple more days, and finally we were in the car, and he says, are we still playing that game? And I went, wow, he remembered. And I said, yes, we are. You got a question? Yes. He said, when my wife and I were first married. Now, this goes back probably to when he was in his 20s. We're talking 50-some years. He said, back when my wife and I were in our 20s, we had a little baby girl, and she died. And it was so hard on us. And I've always wondered where she went. And my wife has told me that she became an angel. And what I want to know, because it's been on my mind for all these years, did my little girl become an angel? Well, I, folks, <laughs> I'm sitting there in the car. It's in the car that he asked this, and, I, and the first thought that came to my mind this man's been thinking about this for 50-some years. So I said, I've got good news and bad news for you. Which do you want first? He says, give me the bad news first. How many of you would have had the bad news first? Let me see your hands. All right. How many would have had the good news first? Let me see your <laughs> I just saw one hand. <laughs> okay, we're all negative, aren't we? We want the bad news first. All right. That's why we say when we're giving directions, go down three blocks to that first stoplight and go to the next intersection to be another stoplight. And why do we always say they're stoplights? They're green as much as they're red. They're actually traffic signals. But anyway, that's negativity. So anyway, he says, give me the bad news first. So I said, all right. She didn't become an angel. Really? I said, you want the good news? Yes, he said, I want the good news. I said, because it was before the age of accountability, she took a position higher than angels. He had tears in his, he had tears in his eyes. He had tears in his eyes. You know, folks, they're all out there. Play, play a stump the whatever pastor game with them. Talk to them about Christ when you get a chance. Marsha and I call it, 
We just plant faith flags wherever we go. Faith flags. We just somehow start a conversation that God may use for us to witness. Just start them. Start them with friends. Start them with servers in restaurants. Start them wherever you go. You're standing in line. Start a conversation and talk about the Lord. Let God use you to be a spiritual influence in somebody's life. Amen? Well, I'm going to pray, and I'll just say this. If any of you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then you have not made the most important decision in your life. There's no other decision in life that is as important as trusting Christ as your Savior. And you need to do it, and you need to do it. Whenever the Spirit of God convicts your heart to the point that you see your need to quit being your own Savior and allow Jesus, God's Savior, to be your Savior, you will be separated from God forever. Make that decision and trust Christ. We'll be around here at the end of the service to talk to you if you want to talk. Maybe you have one of those stump the pastor questions. We're here. And I would just say, if you're here as a believer and you haven't had it all out for Christ in your life, you need to put it in, get out of first gear and put it in third gear and, and start going down the highway of life on fire for God, it's never too late to say, I'm your man, God. I'm your woman, God. I'm your child, God. I'll, I'll be for you what you want me to be. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to think about precious things, most valuable things. When we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the most valuable things in this world. We pray that you'll just help everyone to search their hearts today. Everyone make sure that if they haven't trusted Christ their Savior, they'll, they'll begin yielding to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit and come to the place where they would be able to say, I want Jesus to be my Savior from my sins. And Father, if there are those here that need to kick it into high gear in their Christian life, Christian walk, be more effective for you, I pray that you'd help each one to say, I can do better at this. I can be a light in a dark place. I can be a little more aggressive. I can talk to friends. I can talk to family. I can at least broach the subject and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. And as we do that, may we exemplify some of these traits that we've just saw, seen in Acts chapter 2. As this church comes together in community, as, a, as an assembled and gathered group to bear this testimony and light in this community. And we'll praise you for it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together as we sing our closing hymn.